All right. Well, good afternoon. I'm Joel. I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to continue uh, in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the last section, uh, Matthew 7. The section is Matthew 7, 13 through 27. We're going to look at the middle verses. Um, I'll explain why in a second, but so we're not going to read the whole thing. Just Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does my, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, you've already been ministering to us, uh, welcoming us into your presence, and um, assuring us of, uh, of uh, your pardon, your forgiveness. And now as you speak to us, hopefully our hearts and our minds are calmed enough to listen to you. Hopefully my heart and my mind is calm enough to preach your word. Calm all of our hearts, still our minds, still our souls. Help us all to know that you are for us, that your word, however challenging it may be, um, ultimately is a comfort to us to build us up into your image, into uh, the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're nearing the end. Um, as I said, the last section is Matthew 7, 13 through 27, but you can almost divide this, this section into two, two different emphases. And the uh, beginning and the end uh, verses, the beginning and the end focus on what you could say is like true and false discipleship. Focuses more on true and false disciples. The middle section that we read focuses on true and false prophets or true and false leaders. And so we're going to look at that section these middle verses tonight, Jesus' warning is called to pay attention to the fruit of the false prophets, to not follow them. He calls us to be discerning followers. So that's what we're going to look at, um, how to become discerning about our leaders, but also inevitably it's going to call us, call us to be discerning about ourselves as followers. Whether you're a leader or a follower, you must have discernment. Um, and I'm going to use this uh, metaphor. I mean, there's a, a few different kind of metaphors that Jesus uses in this passage, but the tree one stands out, that leaders are like trees. And I'm going to let that kind of shape the points. And I've got my points this time, and there are five, and we're going to rifle through them. I could not figure out how to do them one by one, so go ahead and just slap them all. There we go. So the five points. Leaders are trees. Trees are a gift. So leaders are a gift. We've got to evaluate their fruit, recognize the good fruit, recognize the bad fruit, and eventually come to the 
to the, the tree of life. Yeah, so you, you know where I'm going with that. No surprises. Um, let's go through this, though. First, leaders are a gift, right? Trees are good. Jesus compares leaders to trees. Good leaders, good trees bear good fruit. Bad leaders, bad trees bear bad fruit. You know, if you know of how the tree kind of functions in the story of Scripture, the tree begins with the tree of life, or the Scripture, the story begins with the tree of life in the garden, ends with the tree of life in the heavenly city, right? And that tree of life is kind of coming to its own where it bears fruit every month, a different fruit, and, and, the, and the leaves are the, for the healing of the nations. Trees are the symbol of life. And you don't even need to read Scripture to kind of know that. Think about it. If, you, if you're walking through the desert and you see a true tree and that tree happens to be to bear fruit, I mean, you've got shade, you've got water pour off, you've got food, you, you can live, right? It's, it, it kind of provides for all human needs. Trees are the symbol of life. They provide a home, a place, protection, shelter, right? Trees also point us to heaven. And good leaders are like good trees, right? Whether it's in the church or outside, good leaders function like a tree. They point us to what is good. They call us into good things, right? They cast vision, they educate us, they teach us, they protect us from all kinds of different dangers, the dangers of of ideas or the dangers of isolation or the dangers of just our own foolishness, right? And, and they, they even provide us with a kind of fuel. I mean, we, we do feed off our leaders, their energy and their passion and their, and their devotion, right? We feed off their confidence. And that's why when you read scripture, you see that leaders are described as a gift, whether it's the Christian leaders that God gives the church or just leaders kind of in, in the world, they're described as a gift. Ephesians 4, Jesus gives gifts to the church and they're Different offices, leaders, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors. Romans 13, it's civil leaders. In both cases, leaders are this gift that God gives the church. And what that means is if we don't have leaders in our life, if we don't have real relationship with, with leaders, then we're missing out on the gift. We're missing out on part of our life. It's, it's interesting, Matthew, in Matthew 9, a couple of chapters after this, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he sees the crowds, and he has compassion on them. It's like, why does he have compassion? It's like, is it just because it's, Matthew says, it's because they're like sheep without a shepherd, people without a leader. Now, some of us have been alienated, deeply hurt. We've been abused by leaders in our life, and we struggle to trust anyone, and we need to know that Jesus grieves with you. He grieves for you, and yet he still offers leaders as a gift to you. He wants you to find good trees and gather under them for, the, for your own sake. There are some of us, our default mode, I mean, all of us kind of have this default mode. Like nobody, when they're growing up, is like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're not like, I want to be the ideal follower. Right? Like we don't dream that for our kids either. Right? But some of us are like, I don't, I don't want to be a sheep. I don't, want to, I don't really, you know, we might kind of get involved and participate, but it's, we keep it at a distance, right? We keep... We're not going to devote ourselves to anybody. We're not going to let really anybody lead us or shape us. And if Matthew 9 is true, right, Jesus feels sorry for you. He does. He's like, oh, man, your life could be so much more if you would just let people lead you, accept the gifts that I've given you in leaders, right? Because you'll never become who God created you to be without leaders. I mean, it's just true. of our. We would never survive without parents guiding us initially. And then other people are brought into our life. Leaders facilitate our life. And it's not just the provision, kind of the, the education. It's not just like the, the concrete help that they offer us that make them so necessary and so good. We need to experience being a follower. Right? So much, just think about like 
So much of your life is learning how to navigate with people in authority over you. So much change in your life comes as you learn to maturely interact with the people that lead you, confronting them, but humbly with honor, you know, receiving their correction, discerning the fruit. If you've ever had to confront a boss or a parent and you did it well, amazing, beautiful things can come from that. Incredible things, incredible changes can happen in you as you realize like, man, I lived through that. I didn't die. Okay, incredible things can happen to leaders as they accept maybe the correction or as you accept their correction. Leaders are a gift, right? So number two, we've got to evaluate fruit, the fruit of leaders. We've got to evaluate the trees, right? Now, two implications for this. First, notice Jesus assigns the responsibility of evaluation to the people, to the followers. You guys got to discern. He instructs the people to be discerning. And so it's, you know, it's, it's not news that, that we have an issue of like a crisis of leadership, or at least it's perceived that way in the church and outside the church. I mean, every couple of weeks, if not more frequently, there are scandals. And the pattern usually goes like this, like another disgraced Christian pastor, another disgraced CEO, whatever it is. And we're all like, man, I can't believe it. Wow. How could that happen? Who, who knew? Right. But then you wait a couple of weeks and inevitably what you hear is like, oh, people did know. And some people were speaking up. And they got sidelined. Other people knew and they just kind of stuck their head in the sand. Man, wow. It's not that it's the follower's fault, but they could have done something to limit the extent of the damage. Right? And Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to be discerning. You can't just follow blindly. You can't say, oh, this guy looks good. This guy looks good. And just follow. You've got to be discerning. He lays the responsibility to evaluate the feet of the followers. And that doesn't mean that a leader's failure um, is anybody, anybody's failure but his or hers. And yet, so much can be done to limit the damage if we are all acting as discerning people and taking responsibility to discern. But next, under this point, we pay attention to the leader's fruit. We evaluate them. He says, he says over and over, recognize them by their fruit. You have to ask, like, what is that? You know, when you, you can't just look at a tree in the middle of winter and tell if it's healthy. Right? You've got you've to wait. You've got to wait for the spring or the late su or the summer, whenever it is that the tree bears fruit, and then you got to taste the fruit. You got to see what it may look great on the outside, but it may not be good on the inside. Evaluation takes time. Evaluation of our leaders takes time. You don't just judge leaders or their communities just by first impressions. Some of us, are, our default is we're way too quick and confident in our assessment. All right, we assume bad leaders are good because we're mesmerized by their humor or their intelligence or their charisma. We dismiss good leaders worthy of our following, but we dismiss them because you know, they fail to impress us. They fail to move us on the spot when we see them. And in both cases, we're not giving leaders time to show the fruit. There needs to be a patient kind of assessment that comes as you evaluate your leaders. And sometimes the fruit, you know, it may look really good. It may even be really good. And yet you don't have a taste for it yet. Not all of us like the fruits that other people like. The question is, is that a problem with you or is that a problem in them? It's complex. It takes time. But the responsibility is ours. Jesus says, don't abdicate. Don't. You must be discerning. Be discerning. Next, gather under good leaders. Recognize the good fruit, Jesus says. So what is good fruit? Well, let me read you again. Verses 21 through 23. 
Um, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, think about this. Just follows his, his, his instruction on discerning good from bad leaders, right? And then he says, look, we're talking about fruit. Let me tell you something right off the bat. Just because you see somebody giving lots of lip service to my name and saying my name all the time, just because you see them doing incredible acts, miracles in my name, healing in my name, casting out demons, he's like, what's he saying? He's saying fruit is not just power. It's not just impressive things. It's not just getting things done. Right? You can do all those things, have those abilities, and it doesn't necessarily indicate anything about your character. I mean, even in Scripture, you see examples of this. You see Balaam in, Num in Numbers 22 who has this beautiful prophecy that's all true about Israel, and yet Balaam is doing it all for the money. He's not the kind of guy you would want to follow, and yet his prophecy is true. He's prophesying. You have Jesus in, 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 uh, in uh, the triumphal entry of, of Jerusalem, and he's, he's coming into Jerusalem, and the religious leaders rebuke him because his disciples are saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and the religious leaders say, Shut them up. Quiet them down. And Jesus says, Oh, if they didn't say anything, then the rocks would cry out. Right? The rocks would prophesy. But you're not going to follow rocks. Just because you see impressive acts of power doesn't mean people, it's not a sign of their character. It's not a sign of their character. Good fruit, Jesus says. What is it? Because he says it in there, and it's so easy to miss. He says, it's not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. It's the one who does the will of my Father. It's like deceptively simple. Good leaders, they submit to God. Good leaders, like the tell, the mark, is that they clearly are following God, doing his will, imitating him, obeying him, respecting him, growing with him, communing with him. It's so easy to get distracted by power, right? This person, you know, he or she, they can get things done. They've really got the ability. They can get things done. And so many times we make concessions and we say, well, they've got some serious blind spots or they've got some serious character falls, but they can get things done. They're good for the institution. They can get things done. And Jesus is saying, no, do they do the will of my Father, right? Good leaders don't act like exceptions to God's rule. They submit to God's rule just like everyone else is called to. Good leaders aren't perfect, but they're working on their problems. Good leaders are repenting and, and forgiving. Good leaders are open to correction from the outside. They want to know how their followers experience them. Good leaders exhibit the same fruit of the Spirit as everyone else is called to exhibit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Good leaders are aimed at glorifying God, bringing Him praise. And so they work to impress you with God and not with themselves. Right? And that, you know, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller now, in his book on preaching, he talks about how in so much of our ministry or our preaching, and this is not true not just in the church but outside of it, in so much of what we do there's always a subtext to it. You know, it's easy for me to stand up and preach and the subtext is like, are you impressed with me? You know, aren't I great? Or for us, the subtext may be like, we're so great, but look at them. They're so bad. But Keller says the subtext must always be, isn't God great? Are your leaders drawing attention to themselves? Are they drawing your attention to Jesus? Inviting you to praise him, to know him more deeply. It's deceptively simple, but it's so crucial you know, good leaders, they need training. They need certain abilities, certain 
power, certain skills, certain talents. But fundamentally, Jesus is showing us good leaders are good people. Good, good, good character. And, and that goodness, that character, that love for God and others begins to infect in a good way. It's contagious the people who follow them. Good leaders are good people who follow the Heavenly Father. Well, let's keep talking about fruit. What about bad fruit? If the tell of good leaders is that they obey God, they're good people, good character, bad leaders, if, we, if we're to mix metaphors, Jesus puts, he, he puts his finger on this, this ravenous hunger that characterizes false prophets, he says. He says, beware of the false prophets who appear as sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Unhealthy leaders, he says, are driven by this deep hunger, and Jesus says, watch out for it. Beware of that. Look out for that. Let me just say three things about this hunger, and I'll spend just a little bit longer on this one. That the hunger can manifest in all sorts of ways. Some we expect, and some maybe we expect less, right? But it's always damaging. Bad leaders, right, are often coercive, manipulative, deceitful. Why? Because they have a hunger for power or success or achievement or significance, and it drives them just to run over people, right? And we all think we, we've got that category, but, but that hunger can manifest in a very different way, right? Bad leaders also abdicate, and they're passive, and they refuse to disrupt things or confront problems in their people. Why is that? Because they're hungry for the people's praise. They're hungry for the people's acceptance, and it leaves them to abdicate their responsibility, and people get just hurt just as much in those communities as they do the coercive communities. Often we're very sensitive to the one and not quite as sensitive to the other. The hunger can drive us, drive leaders in all different kinds of ways. The next point is that the hunger is often kind of hidden, even to the, to the individuals who experience it. It's, it's latent, you could say, right? And th that's the hard thing about hunger is that often the leaders may not even be aware of it, you know? Sometimes it's very conscious and very obvious, but other times it's not. You know, when, when Alice and I were newly married, like many foolish newlyweds, we got a puppy. And we named him Milo after the cat and Milo and Otis. So we're backwards on all fronts. And, and one evening, one fall evening, we're, we're, we were living in this apartment with the stairway indoors, and we're walking up the stairway, and I think the dog was young... Little enough that we were, I think we were carrying him up because we loved him. Uh, we were carrying him up the stairs and we passed somebody who had just come from the fair and they were finishing off a turkey leg. And they were like, hey, Milo would love this. And we we're like, oh yeah, he would love that. And so we kind of held it out for the doggy, the puppy. And he like, he bears his teeth and he like goes after that thing, right? And we kind of, both of us were like, oh, like our puppy's kind of ugly now. So we pull the, the, the bone away a little bit, which is like the last thing you do, and he starts growling. And we're like, oh my, like, ooh. You know, like what had happened is like the wolf had come out in the dog, right? The hunger, the turkey bone brought out the hunger. We didn't know it was there. And I don't think little Milo knew it was there either, but the circumstances, it's there now. It's gotta be dealt with. And that's so often how it works with leaders. They don't come into the situation saying, I'm going to run over everybody. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. They don't come into a situation saying, I'm going to let other people, I'm going to let them get, get hurt for my mistakes. You know, I'm going to hide. I'm never going to confront. What happens is that 
it just, it's the circumstances that bring out the hunger, right? Somebody comes to me and says, Joel, you know that, I really think you need to work on your preaching. And suddenly I'm like, no. Oh. Triggers this sense of shame in me. Or maybe it triggers this sense of like, well, tell me what you want so I can give it to you. Right? This hunger for acceptance. You realize as a leader that what you were hoping to create is never going to happen. You never had to broach that issue before, be confronted with that problem before, and now you're confronted with it, and it draws out this anger in you. And you're saying, who is it that's getting in my way? And let's get them out. You might be surprised yourself by the anger that you feel, that hunger that you feel. So often it's latent. We're not even aware of it, but it's there. It's, it's, for, with good leaders, you know, it's not just about whether the hunger is there, but are we aware of the hunger and how it works for us and how it shows up, how we experience it? Have we learned to manage it? Have we, are we working to redeem it, renew it? Or do we deny it, avoid it, overlook it? But next, this final one on hunger, and this is the harder one, is that the leader's hunger can serve as a kind of masking agent that blinds followers to their own hunger. Right? Jesus warns the followers, he says, don't be deceived, don't be taken in. Deceit is possible. We must be vigilant, but deceit is possible. You know, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, sometimes the leader is just that clever and he dupes everybody or she dupes everybody, but sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we benefit from the leader's ravenous hunger without realizing it. Sometimes we benefit from their hunger. Chuck DeGroat, we've mentioned this book before in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. He spends almost all the book, as he should, talking about narcissistic leaders and, and what drives them and how they can, the damaging and traumatic effect they can have on the church. But he also makes this point, and he's very careful, and, and I almost hesitate in making this point, but he makes this point, and it's important for us to hear it, right? That, that followers, and not just the leaders, are susceptible to a kind of narcissism. He calls it collective narcissism. This narcissism that infects both leaders and followers, and here's how he describes the dynamics of this as it works out, is that the leader relies on the adoration and respect of his followers. The follower is attracted to the omnipotence and charisma of the leader. Right? The leader uses polarizing rhetoric and vilifies those who are different so that the leader and the follower become united in this grandiose mission. Right? The followers feed off the leader's certainty in order to fill their own empty sense of self. It's a sad, tragic way that the deep hunger in the leader calls out to the deep hunger in the follower. Often, ravenous leaders appeal to ravenous followers, right? Some of us want hyperactive leaders who make us feel powerful and important. Some of us want passive leaders who will never make us feel uncomfortable. In both cases, we want this leader who experiences the same kind of hunger as we do. And that doesn't mean followers are responsible for the mistakes of the leaders, and it doesn't mean the damage or even the trauma inflicted on many followers is the fault of the follower, because it's not. But DeGroat makes this point very carefully in the book that the pernicious thing about the effects of abusive leadership is that even when it's not our fault, that wound that we experience so often manifests in its own ravenous hunger. The wound that we experience results in this hunger for, for justice, to be done because we've been hurt. We hunger for the security that we've been robbed of or the love or the honor to be restored that's been taken from us. And if we're not careful, that hunger can drive us in all kinds of dangerous directions. Our starving for significance 
a significance that's been wrongly robbed of us may drive us to attach ourselves to dangerous leaders to get that restored sense of self. And we put ourselves again in harm's way. Our craving for the security that has been robbed of us may lead us to never again trust another leader. Even when they're trustworthy, that hunger clouds our vision. And what this means is that if we want to be discerning of leaders and discerning of their hunger, we have to be discerning of our own hunger as followers. Leaders, followers, it doesn't matter. You must discern, do you, where is the hunger? All of us have it, right? We could call it lust. We could call it deep desire, disordered desire. All of us have this deep longing for something, eternal joy, eternal comfort, eternal acceptance, eternal significance, eternal sense of achievement, eternal security. We all have it, and it's driving us. Are you aware of how it drives you? Can you describe it? Do you know how you experience it? And that leads us to the last point. How can we ever find the courage to be the kind of discerning follower that, that Jesus calls us to be? How can we find the wisdom, the humility? It's not easy, right? It's not easy. It's very painful to try to be curious about your own hunger when you've suffered so horribly from the hunger of others. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tall ask. It's hard to admit that we've been deceived or manipulated. Like sometimes we have to own that. We have been. And it's not necessarily our fault, but it makes us feel this shame. We feel unclean. We have to work through that. It's hard to confront hungry leaders. It takes courage. It takes wisdom. It's hard to admit that we have, may have functioned ourselves as unhealthy leaders or unhealthy followers. There's so many ways the pain could show up. So what do we need to see? We need to gather. We need to approach Jesus as our tree of life, as the tree of life. Right? Notice what Jesus is doing here. Just kind of zoom out and see what he's doing is that he's telling common people, beware false prophets, kind of the Beware of false prophets. Reject them. Recognize, recognize them by their fruit. And if it's bad fruit, reject them. He's, he's returning this kind of sense of power and agency to the people. You know, effectively, he's saying, I don't care how, much, how often they have my name on their lips, Lord, Lord. I don't care. I don't care how often they do impressive things and everybody else is like, oh, this is awesome. I don't care if they don't imitate, if they don't obey the will of the Father, if they don't obviously love their heavenly Father, and if they're not calling you into a relationship of love with the Heavenly Father, then I don't care. Move away from them. Right? He has our back. He is the king telling us, discern. Find the good leaders. Get away from the bad ones. And he's calling us into this real relationship with leaders, not abdication, not just folding, not blind hero worship. It's a real relationship, right, where we engage with them as real people, our real thoughts and their real thoughts and our real convictions and their real convictions and there are differences between us and that's okay. But there's an honor, a mutual honor, even a kind of mutual submission and that's right and that's good. That's what he's inviting us into. And it starts with seeing Jesus in all his power as the king empowering you to be that kind of discerning presence in the community. But second, see Jesus, the tree of life, cut down and raised up for you. Right? Jesus says, what does he say in the passage? He says, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a stark image, right? But isn't Jesus, he's the one, he's the prophet who bore all the real, good, beautiful fruit. 
He was the tree of life. And everywhere he went, he brought that life to others. Everywhere he went, he followed the will of his heavenly father. He embodied his heavenly father. But on the cross, Jesus, our tree of life, is consumed. He's consumed in the wrath of God. Jesus, he says, recognize them by their fruit. But on the cross, Jesus becomes unrecognizable. No one sees him as a prophet hanging there bloodied and naked on a cross. Writhing in pain, nobody honors him. He is this beautiful tree of life who becomes ashes for us. But you know the story that in the resurrection, Jesus is transformed in this new kind of tree, this tree of eternal life, impervious to all corruption, a tree that can sustain a whole new creation, a tree that can fuel a new kind of humanity. And he invites us to come shelter under him, to feed on him, to be grafted to him, right? We're united to him, attached to him, so that his beauty and his strength and his power and all of his virtue becomes ours. So that we can know without a doubt what our worth is, that we're accepted and righteous and, and will be glorified in him. And it's in that power, attached to Jesus, our true tree of life, feeding on him, thriving in him, it's in that power that we can engage faithfully as leaders and followers. The gospel doesn't let us kind of transcend our need for human leaders. The gospel frees us to follow well, to lead well. Because if it's true, I mean, if it's actually true that God loves you, that in Jesus he's proud of you, then you can go to leaders if you have a problem. It's going to be okay because you've got Jesus at your back. He is for you and he honors you. Right? If it's true that, that God is working all things for our good, then we can endure difficult leaders sometimes, imperfect leaders. right? Jesus says recognize them by their fruit, but good fruit can still have scars on it. There's not perfect fruit out there for us. We can suffer under imperfect leaders, endure, confront, receive correction, because at back of all of that is, a, is the King Jesus who will vindicate us, who will defend us, who will empower us. If we know our worth, I mean, just think about it. If you go into every situation where there's any kind of power dynamic, those are some of the most intimidating situations, and I'm right there with you. But if you know your worth, if you come with the fullness of God's love for you, if you know that, then think about how it transforms. It just empowers you. You're not so worried about disappointing the person in power. You're not so worried about losing the follower's acceptance. It just, those things might sting a little bit, but they don't crush you. You remain poised. You don't shake under the pressure any longer because you know who you are. You know what you're worth in Jesus. And you'll be faithful leaders and faithful followers, right? because it's no longer this kind of hunger calling out to hunger and feeding and infecting one another, but it's this fullness in the Spirit and God's love calling out to fullness. And that becomes a beautiful thing, not a perfect thing, but a beautiful thing. Not always an easy thing, often a difficult thing, but a transformative thing, a really good thing for you and for me. And so as we come to the table, right, this is where Jesus offers to satisfy the ravenous hunger in you. So what, what, what is the hunger you experience? Take a second and think about it. What, what hunger do you need to bring here? 
to be satisfied. All of us have one. What is it for you? Bring it to Jesus and he'll begin to redeem it. Transform it. He'll satisfy the hunger. He'll calm the soul. He'll bring you back to your seat with a little bit more poise, a little bit more confidence, a little bit more assurance. Because you know who you are, you know what you're worth. So if that's what you're looking for, then come. So let's pray. Father, um, we come before you as the, uh, the God and King, the ruler of all that we can see and all that we can't see. And we pray that you'll make us all uh, faithful followers of you. And that faithfulness will show in our life and, and good, healthy leadership and good, healthy following. For those of us who are, who's, who's, who still feel the, the deep sting of, of wounds, of abuse, betrayal, hurt, let the table be a healing medicine for them. Let it touch on their deep hunger for justice or just for rest, peace, comfort. For those who experience a deep hunger in the form of anger or, or just craving for significance or success, let them experience their righteousness in you at the table. Let them experience your acceptance, your glorious acceptance, and let it satisfy that hunger. For those who may just come numb, not sure what they feel, what they think. Help them see how patient and gentle and kind you are. That's okay. Come numb. Over time, you'll use the table. You'll use your word. You'll use our worship to soften and warm and bring a new life. So help us come in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.